You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 302 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Penelope Fippen makes Ruby format and was previously a lead maintainer of the RSpec testing framework. She's been writing Ruby for just about a decade and still remembers 186. She's sad that she can't hug every cat. Welcome to the show, Penelope. Hi, everyone. Very happy to be here. It's wonderful. So glad to have you. Penelope, what is your developer origin story? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I guess I got started when I was a kid. Um, my Both my parents have sort of like computer or computer adjacent jobs. Uh, and I was sort of always fascinated. Uh, so I started programming when I was I was very, very young. I think I wrote my first Java program when I was aged 12. Uh, and one of the things this does mean is I've been using Eclipse uh, for more than half of my life, uh, which is always uh, funny to me. Um, but really, it, it came from a, a instinct to sort of tinker, to really understand how computers worked and that's that sort of carried me through um my entire life really like one of the things is that i find myself like messing around with software in my hobby time as much as i do when i'm working and that has been a really consistent note uh throughout my life uh and so like where i am today like is really a product of having been fascinated by computers for my entire life and having sort of manipulated and worked with them for a really really long time i think you're so lucky because i got introduced to computers when i was in high school my parents encouraged me to take computer science classes and so mm-hmm. i felt that i was lucky to get that experience early on but for you to know so early on that you enjoyed it and wanted to make a career of it is just something that I, I feel is still kind of rare in our industry. Yeah, it's, I, I don't know. I find that most of the people I talk to, uh, like, found computer science, like, much, much later in their life. So, like, even high school is sort of, like, relatively early, right? So, like, I know some folks who didn't really... Uh, look at programming at all until, like, the second or third years of their undergraduate degrees, or even, like, you know, later in life, career switched uh, from a different profession through a boot camp or self-teaching or whatever it might be. Uh, And so, yeah, like, I, like, excuse me, I, in a sense, consider myself to be very lucky that uh, I, like, sort of have developed technical superpowers just from having been able to do it uh, from a very, very early age. That's great. Well, um, RSpec is a very loved framework in the Ruby community, of course. And so I would absolutely love to hear how you got involved. Yeah, that's a a great question. Um, So I got involved through RSpec actually while I was studying for my computer science degree. Uh, So I was, like, uh, alongside my degree, like, teaching myself Ruby, learning how to build Rails applications, because, uh, like, the community at that time was sort of, like, just beginning to 
really explode out onto the internet. Like, I remember being so fascinated by all of the conference talks uh, that were sort of coming out of the Ruby community and, like, the learning and teaching and sort of, like, niceness that was associated with that. Um, And so, like, one day while I was working on a Rails app and writing tests with RSpec, I encountered a bug and I, like looked into the source code of RSpec and worked out how to fix it and sent a pull request. But along the way, I was finding lots and lots of places in the RSpec code base that could, like, were amenable to refactoring. Um, and so I spent maybe, like, a good six to eight weeks of my life just... And I was a college student. I had loads of free time. Uh, like, just refactoring... Uh, the internals of RSpec, and I ended up sending them so many pull requests that essentially they were like, uh, hey, uh, we're going to give you a commit bit because these are great (laughs) and we would like, we would like for you to keep doing this and stop bugging us. Like, please just merge uh, these yourself. Um, And so like, I ended up basically just joining the RSpec core team through like sheer application of uh, wanting to make it, it better. So where did you gain that experience that you were able to look at the RSpec uh, source code and be able to pinpoint the possible refactorings that you could do? Did you gain that from school or did you have other open source experience? Uh, neither. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I, um, oh, this is, this is like, this is a somewhat difficult question to answer, but essentially just sort of like, an aesthetic for wanting to remove uh, duplication or things that were proving hard to change. Um, and so, like, actually, back back at the that point in time, RSpec had uh, a code climate mounted in all of the repos, and basically, I just sort of took it upon myself to just start moving the code climate grades of the entire code base, like, upwards towards those A's. And really sort of using the insights code climate was providing uh, to uh, find those places and then sort of just thinking about how to collapse uh, things together or create new abstractions or whatever it might be, right? And like at the time, uh, really all code climate was doing was running the flog and flay gems like over Ruby source bases. uh, And those just spot sort of like duplicated uh, code or, like, code that is extremely complex. So, like, uh, I was like, oh, yeah, this totally is a 300-line function with grisly nested, nested if statements. We can probably make that, like, less nested and shorter, right? And so, like, really, it was it was an application of stuff I had been directly taught uh, through those aforementioned sort of, like, uh, Ruby conference talks I had been watching. And so there was this, like, very sort of tight... Uh, feedback cycle between the things I was learning and getting to apply them uh, that was like a a very unique experience I think that was really interesting. I think that's great because even though that happened to you in college I mean we're gonna get into Ruby format it just seems to be a pattern throughout your career so aside from the six to eight weeks that you contributed during your university time. Uh, what contributions are you most proud of with RSpec? So, basically, um, 
I think perhaps the most interesting thing that happened to Arspec in my tenure, I guess there are two things. So one is when I joined the Arspec core team, Arspec was still on major version two, um, and now it's on major version three. And I did uh, a lot of the work along with the other core team members at the time uh, to actually like deliver that. Um, and so um, I was sort of on the front lines of implementing uh, some of the new keywords and doing method cleanup. And a, a, uh, actually a big part of it was uh, just deprecating code in a way that didn't break people's test suites. Uh, which is what we use the major version for. So, like, RSpec has a very strict adherence to semantic versioning, and, go like, when it is people's test suites, you, like, literally cannot break them, right? Like, like breaking someone's test suite would be, like, a sort of horrifying thing for RSpec to do. Um, and so part of it, frankly, is just work that people couldn't really detect to make sure that moving from Aspect 2 to Aspect 3 was as seamless as possible. Um, in terms of tangible stuff people have actually probably seen, uh, I managed the sort of like Rails compatibility of Aspect through version 5 and uh, up to version 6.0, uh, including implement, uh, implementing the compatibility layer for Rails system test, uh, which replaced feature specs basically wholesale. And, like, the system tests are just, like, way better than feature specs ever were. Um, and so, like, I'm really proud of that one because it sort of took a standardized piece of work that was done by the Rails team and specifically Eileen Uchatel and uh, sort of integrated it with RSpec. And that was a lot of fun because, um, like... It was done very collaboratively. It wasn't just sort of me in a lab. That one was like reaching out to folks who have applications to like test prototypes and see what upgrading onto those might look like and whether or not there are bugs and that sort of thing. But yeah, so like broadly speaking, um, most of my tenure on RSpec was either fixing bugs in RSpec mocks or maintaining uh, RSpec Rails through versions uh, five and up. Wow. So I have to ask, as a major contributor and um, maintainer of RSpec, of just a very highly used library, what was that like in terms of community interaction? I imagine you got pinged quite a bit or got a lot of requests for help. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, some of it was like fairly standard maintainer stuff, right? So like bugs come in, you triage them, uh, that sort of thing. And then folks filing pull requests, uh, reviewing the pull requests, that sort of thing. Um, I always tried to ensure that I was being really, really nice uh, to people when they were submitting uh, pull requests, even if they were not, like, fully formed or they needed some additional work. Like, really trying to help them to get stuff across the line. Um, and then, like, the the big one that I sort of, like, drove towards the end of my tenure on the Aspect core team was um, developing a, like, triage process for Aspect Rails bugs. So uh, a big problem with 
Aspect Rails versus the rest of the Aspect framework is that it's so deeply entangled into the user application um, because it needs to talk to Rails, it needs to talk to all of your like models and controllers and all of the stuff you've written. And then like up until uh, Aspect version 4, which I don't believe has been released yet on the Rails side, we maintained compatibility from Rails 3.0 and up, going all the way back to those really, really ancient versions. Um, and so, like, uh, taking in bug reports from people required very, very precise information that was, like, pretty hard to capture in just what most people would think of as a standard good uh, bug report. And so just asking people for a little more information in a little bit more of a structured way. Well, thank you so much for your contributions. We're going to take a quick segue because I'm going to confess to you that you are one of my absolute favorite conference speakers. And I know you've spoken at quite a few conferences. Do you have a favorite talk that you've done? Oh, yes. Uh, by far and away, um, the favorite talk of mine that I have given uh, was entitled What is Processor? And uh, that's a talk I gave before I transitioned, so folks Googling it will have to look it up in my dead name. Um, but uh, basically, in the talk, I uh, sort of like gave a uh, from Ruby to how assembly executes uh, in like a modern processor in 45 minutes, really breaking it down in a simple, clear, and understandable way through very heavy use of diagrams and very little text um, in how. Uh, modern computer actually executes assembly uh which was like really really enjoyable to give as just a like i'm gonna break down a bunch of complex technical detail in a way that is understandable to an average uh ruby developer and the response i got from it was fantastic did it require a lot of research or was this stuff that you had already dug into you already mentioned that you like to do these kinds of things for fun so it wasn't something that you really had to dig into first yeah, so the, the answer to that question is no, but only because it was basically the output of one of my college classes, like, translated into a conference talk. So in college, uh, I took a advanced uh, computer architecture course, which went uh, actually a little bit beyond where I go in the talk. Um, and I went into basically, uh, like, the first sort of, like, assignment of that course which is building an assembly language and building a very very simple uh processor but so like um i sort of like have in my head just ambiently like the design of how those things work uh because it's something i study in college and so like i like it's convenient in the sense that i was sort of just able to take uh like one third of a fourth year computer science class uh, and turn it into a 45-minute talk. That's fantastic. So how did you get involved in Ruby Central? Um, I gave a talk at, in fact, the, I guess the easiest way to say this is I have spoken at every RubyConf and every RailsConf since 2013, um, apart from one where I was sick, uh, and there Justin Searles filled in for the talk I was supposed to give. Um, and basically, eventually, if you keep speaking over and over again, uh, we invite folks to join the program committee for our conferences. So I first did the program committee, I think, in 2015. Um, and there, and from there, like, uh, I just sort of kept... I, like, really, really enjoyed it, and so I kept doing those. And then eventually, uh, earlier this year, 
uh, Marty, who is one of the other directors of Ruby Central, asked me if I would like to also be a director of Ruby Central. Uh, I said yes, and that's how we got to where we are today. Um, so really, it's just consistently showing up and then being interested in sort of doing the work. Like, the reason I'm doing it is I really deeply care about the future of the Ruby community, and so, like, I want to be, you know, one hand on the wheel, like, steering the direction of that. I love that. So I'm going to put you on the spot for a second because a common string throughout this podcast is me encouraging listeners to go out and apply to speak at different conferences. So as someone who has read so many CFPs for both RailsConf and RubyConf, is there any advice that you can give to those listeners? Um, I have, so I have tons of really specific tactical advice, uh, that I could give as sort of enumerated bullet points about what to include and what not to include. But um, sort of at a higher level, the biggest mistake I see in CFPs is not the intended content of the talk. Usually the intended content of the talk is a perfect fit for our conferences. It's that the uh, person writing the CFP cannot put themselves in the shoes of the audience. Um, and so it's very hard for me as a reviewer to understand what the audience will get out of their talk as opposed to just what the person will talk about. And that's like a fairly subtle distinction. And so perhaps to make it clear, it's the difference really between showing that you sort of like know your content versus like why someone who is attending RubyConf or RailsConf uh, should care about that content. And we see perfectly well-written, perfectly structured talk submissions um, that don't tell me why it's a fit for the program, why it makes sense for an audience member at RubyConf or RailsConf. Um, and so almost all the proposals I see that don't end up making it into the conference uh, don't make it for that reason. One of the things folks should consider when they're submitting to RubyConf and RailsConf is that more than 40% of everyone who attends, it's their first conference they've ever attended, and they're usually like yet less than a year into their developer careers, uh, certainly less than two. Um, and so um, many folks don't appreciate just how wide the spectrum of skill levels is. It's okay to give an expert level talk, it absolutely is, but we can't accept 60 expert level talks, right? We have to draw a line somewhere. Um, and so with reviewing the CFP, um, and not just reviewing, right? We also do talk selection. Like, we're not just looking at the individual scores. You may actually have a perfectly well-rated talk that we just can't fit into the program because the level is wrong or because we, there's no way for us to make it fit uh, against the background of the folks who will be in the room. Um, and so, like, the other, I guess, piece of advice I would have for folks, especially newer folks who get a single rejection from a Ruby Central conference, is don't take it as like uh, a, no, a no forever it's more of a like not right now no I love that and basically what happened for me is I applied to RailsConf for three years didn't get in then I got in then I applied to RailsConf again didn't get in but then I applied to RubyConf for the first time and got in so you just never know but for me I've always gone to these conferences applying with at least three talks because inevitably 
one might spark an interest. And what's interesting too is that I applied to RailsConf with three talks, didn't get in, but you don't want to assume that those talks are not good. And so then you turn around and maybe go to the regional conferences or to your local meetup with the same content and see if that maybe strikes some gold there. And possibly after the conference, if someone is so kind to give you more feedback, then that's possible as well. Yeah, so so I will say, going a little bit wider than, you know, the universe I control, which is uh, RubyConf and RailsConf, um, I highly recommend uh, folks who are starting find a local meetup and speak there or find a regional conference and speak there. Now, one of the things I have observed that I'm personally really, really sad about is um, the sort of slow decline of the regional Ruby conference. It feels like there are many fewer of them today than there were three or four years ago. Um, I remember speaking at something like 26 conferences in 2015, which was a lot. Um, but so, like, uh, it's that also, like, one of the things I personally sort of see as a mission for myself and Ruby Central is working with the community to reestablish some of those regional conferences because right now if folks only get one conference a year they're coming to rubyconf or railsconf and that's sort of crushing the space for like those local uh conferences which i'll be honest with you that's how i got my start so the first ruby conference i ever spoke at was ruby nation in like the dc metro area and uh i cannot tell you how excited i was to be able to do that and like those aren't like that conference as far as i'm aware doesn't exist anymore the regional in new york doesn't exist anymore there's not one in san francisco uh i think the one in chicago is shut down so like we're beginning to see like a trend of these conferences going away and it kind of makes me really sad i agree with you and that's wonderful advice well i am super eager to get into ruby format but we are going to take a quick break for our sponsor this episode of the 5x5 ruby on rails podcast is brought to you by mirror placement Hi, this is Brian Mariani, founder of Mirror Placement, the Ruby on Rails-focused recruiting firm. I was Brittany's guest on this podcast a few months ago and loved hearing from so many of you following that appearance. So I'm back to say hi because the new year is often a time developers start looking for a new change or a fresh start, and uh, that can often be a job change. So if you're open to connecting, I'd be happy to share the inside scoop on how the Rails job market is shaping up for 2020. Spoiler alert, it's looking very strong. And uh, we have a lot of remote roles as well, more than ever, actually. And uh, I'm super excited about our remote roles. So if that fits your lifestyle well, we should definitely chat. And you know what? Even if you're not looking for a job right now or it's not a good time, no worries at all. I'd still love to connect and learn more about you. So when the time is right and the right company does cross my desk, we can send it your way in the future. I've always said you know, recruiting is all about long-term relationships and not pressuring people. So if you'd like to start a new conversation or rekindle an old one, I'd be thrilled to chat. Just shoot me an email at brian at mirrorplacement.com and we can set something up. Thanks for listening and happy holidays. Thank you to Mirror Placement for sponsoring the show. So let's get into it. Ruby format. First of all, what is it? Yeah, so Ruby format is essentially a Ruby auto formatter. So, uh, you input into it a Ruby source code file, and it spits out a semantically equivalent uh, Ruby source code file that uh, 
has just been reformatted to have a completely consistent layout. So you can't misalign data structures, you have to drop uh, like uh, arrays onto multiple lines in a consistent way, you know, all of that stuff is decided by like an unconfigurable algorithm and not like by a human brain. So I'd love to know is how did Go influence the formatter? I guess to get to this, we need to talk a little bit about what I did outside of the open source world. Uh, so I was working at DigitalOcean and DigitalOcean like sort of has this hybrid uh, Rails monolith Go microservices architecture that's like actually very cool these days and works super well. Um, and so I got the opportunity to write like a pretty substantial amount of Go code uh, while I was working at DigitalOcean. And if you work on Go, um, you will find that their community is obsessed with developer tooling. Uh, they have a tool called GoFormat, uh, which is actually pronounced GoFumpt, uh, GoFMT, uh, which does the same thing as RubyFormat, takes in Go code, outputs formatted files. But they also have like a tooling to automatically manage imports, which is the same thing as requires in Ruby, and a tool to like automatically lint your code for things uh, that may be suboptimal ways to write stuff. And like um, naming conventions, like they have a tool that will literally fail if you forget to capitalize acronyms in the correct way, and so on and so on, right? Their community is obsessed with tooling. And this makes working with Go source code incredibly pleasant. Um, it's like very, very nice to actually build Go programs because they've invested so much time in developer tooling. And I sort of looked to the Ruby world and was like, we looked to the Ruby world and was like, we really need something like this. Um, now, I'd actually been sort of threatening to build a Ruby formatter for, uh, <laughs> and I'll, I'll explain to you why I use that word threatening in just a second, uh, for like many years before I started, uh, before I even actually ever programmed a line of Go. And it, it basically came out of um, sort of like uh, a frustration of working with Rubocop in that um, like there's just no way to quickly execute Rubocop uh, in like a save file reload text kind of loop. It takes far too long to execute. And I want to be clear, this is not a dunk on Rubocop. Like Rubocop is doing other things with that time that are actually useful. Um, but so like there was a gap in the space and I've sort of like wanted to invent this tool for a really long time. Well, that all makes a lot of sense, and I'm really excited that you're building this for our community. So, listeners, that you have piqued their interest, how can they get started with Ruby Format? Yeah, so the best advice I can give them is don't. Uh, <laughs> um, it's it's not in any sense uh, production ready today. Uh, it does not... Um, well, okay, so... I guess to talk about this, we need to talk about uh, how I've been implementing it. So, like, I basically implemented a functional version of Ruby format end-to-end -end in the Ruby programming language, and it wasn't fast enough, because Ruby is known for many things, but, like, sheer execution speed is not one of them. Uh, so I started rewriting chunks of Ruby format in Rust um, in order to get more performance. And uh, basically... The the state it's in today is that it does not actually output valid Ruby programs in all cases. Uh, and so, like, 
the idea of uh, someone who is not like willing to deal with experimental grade nonsense genuinely scares me. Like people are building editor plugins for Ruby format, and I'm like, you can do that, but like this will break all of your code today. Um, and so the answer is like star the GitHub repository, and I will shout very loudly when it's ready for like testing, uh, which I hope to get done soon. But like. Uh, working with Ruby source code is actually really complicated and difficult, uh, and so I'm not putting any time guarantees on that. Oh, this is shocking, a developer not putting a time guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's very smart, and I think that's great that you are basically going to have a call to action to the community to help you test it. I'm sure yep. we Ruby Weekly and everyone will be shouting from the rooftops once it gets to that point. I hope so. So you mentioned uh, your time at DigitalOcean, and I know you have a lot of experience being on call, and you have a lot of content out there about it. So for developers who are new to being on an on-call rotation, what is the one piece of advice that you can offer? When you're in the middle of an incident, the best thing you can do is uh, massively, massively over-communicate. Um, so I have managed like very very complicated like multi-team multi-system uh outages or data losses uh that required coordination of like say a half dozen engineers right spanning multiple engineering teams um and a bias i tend to see is people only communicating when state has changed but the problem with that is it leaves you in a place where you don't know if the operator is still there and that you may well find that if they were communicating, someone may be able to jump in and help. So I have a general rule when I'm running an incident that if I haven't heard something from someone who's actively involved in the last five minutes, I will directly ping them uh, to ask them what their state is, even if nothing has changed. And that's not to like try and pressure them to move faster that is purely so that uh, i as someone running or involved in the incident understand what everyone is working on in a real-time sense because they're confusing and it generally in my experience has led to faster resolution in terms of like organizational stuff um if you're entering an on-call rotation for the first time um, actively seek uh, mentorship, backups, uh, reverse shadowing, um, like, and ensure your organization is set is going to set you up to succeed, not set you up to fail. Um, one of the worst things that can possibly happen is putting someone who's new to being on call or like new to like the kind of engineering you're doing into an on call rotation without a safety net to fall back on. Um, and so, like. This is probably not so much for the new on-caller in your audience as it is for, um, like, their managers and their leadership as a sort of clarion call to be like, hey, make sure your new, new folks have as much support as possible because incidents are terrible and, like, anything you can do to help them succeed is really important and they won't know what that is because they've probably never been in it before. And I guess on the flip side, to the folks who are new to it, it's okay to not know what to do, like, um, because when that pager goes off for the very first time in your life, uh, you pr and the person hands off to you, like, 
here's what seems to be wrong. It's going to take you a little while to, like, get oriented, and that's okay. Like, a bunch of being on on-call, frankly, is developing really good instincts over the systems you work on. And even really experienced on-callers, when they switch jobs or switch teams, uh, will have a ramp-up time, right? Uh, and so, like, if I were to parachute onto a new engineering team, I couldn't just immediately be on call for their systems, right? I could do it, like, faster than someone who's never been on call before, but, like, putting me into that rotation on day one and expecting me to be able to triage the most severe incidents just isn't going to happen. I don't know the golden metrics, I don't know uh, what normal looks like, I don't know what abnormal looks like, I don't know where to go if we don't have enough signal, I don't know who to talk to, who the dependencies are, like, there's a bunch of stuff you just won't know, right? Um, and that's all okay, right? Like, it's, treat it as a learning experience, and I guess the other thing is hunt for, like, uh, a blameless post-mortem culture. Tech has gotten pretty good at this, but it's still not perfect, and anything you can do to be like, hey, we're looking for people causes here, not, like, systems causes, um, is really, really powerful. Oh, that's excellent advice, and I really appreciate you sharing it. I especially resonate with the blameless part. So this is a question that I plan on asking quite a lot this year on the podcast. So you have invested so much into the Ruby community. What are your thoughts on its overall future? Oh, I have... I have a ton of thoughts about this. Well, I mean, okay, so I guess perhaps to come back to the earlier discussion about Ruby Central, right, it's literally my part-time job to have thoughts about this, uh, to, like, sort of think about the future of the community as a whole. Um, and I, I look a lot to outside communities. Um, so, like, I always think of Python as being sort of, like, the nearest approximate programming community to us, and then, like, JavaScript is sort of, like, a close second to that. And if, like, if you look at those two ecosystems, right, they are both, like, much sort of, like, culturally, um, actually, I don't want to say culturally here. They both sort of have, um, much healthier communities than the Ruby community. And, like, this is largely driven somewhat by, uh, just the unbelievably huge amounts of funding that are sloshing around in those ecosystems, so, like, huge, huge corporate interests are in JavaScript and in Python that just simply aren't in Ruby. And, like, that money provides a certain degree of oxygen that enables them to breathe and operate in a way that we can't. However, like, I do think the sort of flip side to that is that Ruby people are some of the most excellent people I've ever met in my career like i genuinely think the like baseline membership of people in the ruby community is like very very far ahead of nearly every other programming community i move through and encounter and so when i like look look at the future of the ruby community i sort of break it down into a couple of things so i think firstly um we have a lot of work to do um restoring uh and we mentioned this earlier sort of like the regional and local communities that are beginning to fritter out a bit and like part of that is like 
making sure it's really easy to find great speakers, uh, really easy to run a conference without financial risk. But also part of it, frankly, is just making sure those Ruby communities like all across uh, the world are really, really healthy and strong, um, as opposed to gathering centrally twice a year. Um, I think that we, we continue to see a incoming flood of uh, bootcamp graduates that are fundamentally changing uh, what the Ruby community actually is. So, like, earlier I sort of said to you that about 40% of everyone that comes to a RubyConf or a RailsConf, it's their first conference and they're only a few years into their programming career. Well, like, most of those people, the overwhelming majority of them, have graduated from a code school. Um, and so, like we need to think about what it means for our community to be able to uh, service and adapt to those folks, right? Like, um, you, like, have you tried to hire a senior Ruby developer recently? Like, it's basically impossible. Um, but there's, like, five to ten, uh, like, bootcamp grads for every single one of those senior heads. Actually, that number's probably not high enough uh, that's willing to sort of, like, come in and learn right and like what can you teach them and how can you structure your company in such a way that you're amenable to like that newer talent i think an awful lot um about what it means uh for like ruby not just like 10 years down the line but like 100 years down the line right like are we going to become COBOL, or are we going to be a programming language that like genuinely lasts and people continue to want to build software in for a really long time and like you know uh rails isn't cool anymore but uh you know billion dollar companies are being built in it and the next generation of billion dollar companies are probably already in existence it's never been easier to launch a startup uh with ruby on rails right like rails is so good um, I think people actually underestimate how quickly you can go from zero to an application that throws off a thousand, five thousand dollars a month uh, with Rails. And you can do that much faster than you can with nearly any other programming language and framework. Um, and so, like, this, like, I guess the state of the Ruby community to me is, like, very strong and the future is very bright. But from my position as someone who is like literally charged with stewarding the health of the Ruby community, I see a decline in our ability to get together as people. And that really worries me. I think if anything's going to kill us, it's going to be that. And that's to me, the thing I most want to fix is the ability for folks to gather locally more frequently and like have a really good time while doing it. I think that's a great call to arms to our listeners. If you haven't considered going to a Ruby conference this year, go. If you haven't looked into your local meetups, consider going. Get out there, meet people, meet fellow Rubyists. It, it's really absolutely worth it. I could not agree with you more. For folks in New York City and the New York City area, I will be speaking at the Ruby user group uh, in New York on February 12th. That is the perfect segue because I was about to ask you, how can uh, listeners follow up with you? Yeah, so I mean, for folks who are local, that's that's that. Uh, I'm uh, Penelope underscore Zone on Twitter, uh, which is where like I tweet far too much, uh, like 
dozens of times per day. Uh, it's not all computers, but, like, there's a decent chunk of computers in there. And then, like, in terms of, like, Ruby format, it's uh, github.com slash Penelope Zone, all one word, uh, slash uh, Ruby FMT. Uh, and, like, soon, like, really, really soon, uh, I will be publishing a, like, prototype build of what I hope Ruby format will eventually look like that actually is safe for folks to try. Um those are really the three core places you can find me. Well, thank you so much for all your contributions to our community and for your honest take on the future of the community. I just absolutely great listeners. We will be joining you again next week.